Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing upon the preached word today. We pray that it would cause fathers to rise up and be the kind of godly fathers you're calling them to be, to invest in their children, to teach them the gospel, to model a life of holiness. So Lord, would you work in the hearts of all the dads and all the moms, because they need instruction in this just as much, and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In 1959, the Houston Police Department issued a leaflet entitled How to Make a Child into a Delinquent in 12 Easy Steps. Would you like to hear those 12 easy steps? Okay, you want to make your child into a delinquent? Step number one, begin at infancy to give the child everything he wants. In this way, he will grow up to believe the world owes him a living. Number two, when he picks up bad language, laugh at him. This will make him think he's cute. Step number three, never give him any spiritual training. Wait until he is 21 and then let him decide for himself. Step number four, avoid using the word wrong. It may develop a guilt feeling. This will condition him to believe later when he is arrested for stealing a car that society is against him and he's being persecuted. Step number five, pick up everything he leaves lying around. Books, shoes, clothes, do everything for him so that he will be experienced in throwing all responsibility on others. Step number six, let him read any printed matter he can get his hands on. Be careful that the silverware and drinking glasses are sterilized, but let his mind feast on garbage. Step seven, quarrel frequently in the presence of your child. In this way, they will not be too shocked when the home is broken up later. And then step number eight, give a child all the spending money he wants. Never let him earn his own. Why should he have things as tough as you have them? Number nine, satisfy every craving for food, drink, and comfort. See that every sensual desire is gratified. Denial may lead to harmful frustration. Number 10, take your child's part against neighbors, teachers, and policemen. They're prejudiced against your child. Number 11, when he gets into real trouble, apologize for yourself by saying, I never could do anything with him. And then number 12, prepare for a life of grief. You will be likely to have it. Wow. So, so we saw that the 12 steps to making your child into a delinquent. Let's contrast that with the counsel of a woman who lived in the 1700s, who had 17 children. Two of them were famous children, John and Charles Wesley. Her name is Susanna Wesley, and she wrote this letter. And in the letter she said, The parent who studies to subdue self-will in his child works together with God in the saving of the soul. The parent who indulges self-will does the devil's work, makes religion impractical, salvation unattainable, and does all that is in him to drown his child's soul and body forever. So, you want a delinquent? Give in to his self-will. If you want the salvation of their soul, fight against self-will and lead them to Christ, who alone can give salvation. Now this morning, we're coming to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And as I said, this is our third study. In our first study, we basically stopped at the first word, fathers. And we dealt with that word. 
because what we see here is that the Apostle Paul is laying the ultimate responsibility for the bringing up of the children squarely on the shoulders of the fathers. It's not the ultimate responsibility of the school system, whether it's public school or Christian school or Christian daycare. It's just not. It's not the ultimate responsibility of the church, whether it's you know, the youth minister or the youth pastor or the Sunday school teacher or the Awanas club or anything like that at all. And it's not the ultimate responsibility even of the mother. According to the Bible, it's the ultimate responsibility of fathers. So dads, we have to take that to heart. This is our job. This is our work that we cannot shirk. We will stand before God one day to give an account for how we have raised our children. In the second message, we took a look at the negative command, which is the first part of verse 4. Do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. We looked at seven ways that that commonly happens. Number one, showing favoritism to our children. Two, being overprotective of our children. Three, demanding perfection of our children. Four, being overly critical of our children. Five, neglecting our children. Six, exercising unreasonable discipline on our children. And then seven, not listening to your children. But in this study, we're going to take the last part of verse four, and we're going to look at the positive command. The negative, don't do this. Don't provoke them to anger. But here's the positive part. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now that phrase, bring them up, that phrase, bring them up, literally means to nourish them up to maturity. In other words, feed them, nourish them up to maturity. It's a word that's talking about tenderness and affection and love. We don't see that in the English translation, but it has to do with affection and love and gentleness in fact, John Calvin, when he translated this phrase, he translated bring them up as let them be fondly cherished. Let them be fondly cherished. And so he emphasized the ideas of gentleness and friendliness. So how are fathers to nourish their children to maturity and fondly cherish them? There's two ways, according to verse 4. They are to do it in the discipline of the Lord, and they are to do it in the instruction of the Lord. Discipline refers to training your children by action. Instruction deals with training your children through your words. You do it through words and actions. Discipline, actions, instruction, words. You use both of those together to rear and bring up your children to know Christ and to follow Him. So we're going to look at those two aspects of bringing up our children. First of all, the discipline of the Lord. Now that word discipline literally refers to child training. But it came to include the idea of, of discipline in the area of physical chastisement. In other words, spanking, or corporal punishment, or corporal discipline. Uh, let me show you where we get that from the scriptures. In Hebrews 12... Verse 6. Hebrews 12, verse 6. It says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, are you familiar with parallelism when you interpret the Bible? You'll have a verse, and there'll be parallel ideas that help us to understand one thing by giving a synonym. 
Okay, it happens all through the Psalms. It's everywhere through the Psalms. It happens here in verse 6. See if you can pull it out. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. The word discipline is parallel to the word scourge. And do you know what it means to scourge somebody? He's give them a weapon. <laughs> this is our word, discipline. Bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. So it can include the idea of physical chastisement or bringing pain to correct a behavioral problem. And so what we're talking about here is spanking. What about it? It's a politically charged issue, isn't it? <clears throat> I, I, I taught this message 23 years ago in Milpitas, in the Bay Area, and I went back and looked at my notes, and at that time there were seven nations who had uh, made it illegal to spank your child at home. Today, 23, year later, 23 years later, there are 42 nations that have made it illegal. It's not illegal in the United States yet. It's not. And I, I don't know what the future holds. Who knows? We're kind of moving in that direction, so I wouldn't be that shocked if it actually ended up happening. But the penal code states it this way. Reasonable, age-appropriate corporal discipline is not deemed to be child abuse. So reasonable, age-appropriate corporal discipline means spanking. That's not child abuse. So it's still legal to spank your child here in the good old U.S. of A. Um, however, if your neighbor knows that you spank your child, and they call the Child Protective Services, and they come out and find bruises or welts on your child, they can actually take your child away. So this gets to be a very serious issue. Uh, what does the Bible say about this? Does it say anything about spanking? Well, actually it does. The Bible doesn't use the word spank. It uses the word rock. And he uses it over and over in the book of Proverbs. So we're going to go to Proverbs and just take a look at what it says. Okay, Proverbs, we're going to start in chapter 13. Verse 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Now, did you notice the word that is parallel to discipline in this verse? No, we got some answers floating around there. Let me help you with that. He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who disciplines him, no, he who loves him disciplines him diligently. So, withholding the rod is opposite to disciplining the child. In other words, to discipline your child, you would use the rod. Does that make sense from this text? And notice that the people that withhold the rod actually hate their children. Do you hate your child? If you never exercise discipline towards your child, the Bible says you hate them. Now, we're not talking about beating your child. We're not talking about leaving scars or welts or bruises on your child. We're not talking about being vindictive or spanking when you're angry and lose your temper. We're not talking about any of those things. We're talking about using the rod, and we'll discuss that in a little bit, to bring 
correction so that the child learns to obey not just you, but learns to obey God. That's the goal. The goal is actually the heart. It's not behavior modification. It's to lead that child to Jesus Christ. And sometimes the rod is necessary in the process of training our children. Let's look at another one. Go over to Proverbs 19, verse 18. Proverbs 19, 18. Discipline your son while there's hope, and do not desire his death. Now what does that tell you if that you do not discipline him while there's hope? You desire his death. In other words, if you just let your child go and let him do whatever he wants to do, he's going to grow up probably to be a delinquent or a hoodlum or get involved in the wrong crowd, and he could have his life shortened simply because of sin. That you did not train him to walk in the ways of God, and so there's consequences to that. Discipline your son while there's hope. Once he grows up, there's little hope left. Invest in your child while they're young. Discipline while, them while they're young so that there's still hope for them at that particular time. They're in their formative years. Let's go over to chapter 22. Verse 15. Proverbs 22, 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Now, when the, when the Bible talks about foolishness, it's not just talking about silliness. It's talking about ungodliness. It's talking about evil character. The, the fool is a man who walks in ungodliness. And it says that every child has this foolishness, this ungodliness in their heart. They're born with it. Their sinful nature inclines them towards foolishness and evil and sin. But the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. In other words, there are times when we need to use a rod or some kind of an implement to bring correction to help the child learn. To turn from ungodliness, to turn from evil, and to turn to Christ. Let's look at chapter 23, verse 13 and 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Now, Sheol is the Hebrew word that's talking about the grave or the place of the dead, the departed. This is another verse in the scripture that talks about death could be a consequence of a wayward child. Maybe he gets into drugs, he overdoses, maybe he's racing his car and playing chicken with other people or go off the side of the road or drink and drive, whatever it is, a wayward child who hasn't learned to obey God can easily fall into patterns that will lead to their untimely death. So he says, don't hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he's not going to die. Don't worry about killing him. <laughs> You'll strike him with a rod, and you may rescue his soul from jail by doing that. Let's look at chapter 29. Verse 15 and 7. Verse 15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Isn't that interesting? You mean we're not supposed to give our child their own way? 
that's kind of like the common advice today, isn't it, that you hear all, and that the world gives? That, you know, I had it rough growing up, and I want to just give my child everything that they want. I want to give them a better life so they don't have to struggle like I did. I think we're doing them a disservice, not a service, because they don't form character. Character is developed by going through trials. But here he mentions two things, the rod and reproof. Discipline, instruction, actions, words. They both work together to give wisdom. But if you let your child get his own way and whatever he wants, what's the result? It's going to bring shame to you as their parents. And then verse 17, correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. Do you want your kids to delight your soul? You're going to have to correct them. You're going to have to correct them. So the rod speaks of administering physical correction. Now, according to Ephesians 6.4, who is to administer this discipline to the child? Anybody know? Father. The text says fathers. Bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. Now, I don't think spanking is the only way you discipline a child. It's one way. But here it appears to me and you'll have to verify if you think this is accurate or not, but it seems like Paul is laying the burden of responsibility on the discipline of the children to the fathers. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, as dads, we go to work and we leave the home. And of course, we can't be disciplining our children when we're away from the home. So we delegate that authority to our wives while we are away. But guess what happens when we walk in the door at the end of the day? It's our job again. Right? We're responsible for that. Okay, so that's who's to administer this discipline. We as dads have to take full responsibility for this. Now let's talk about how we should administer discipline. And we'll talk about how to administer a spanking. This is really nitty-gritty, isn't it? It's very practical. But I want to give you some, what I think is helpful, wise counsel on this. Number one, I would say do it privately. Don't haul off in the middle of Walmart and start spanking the child. <laughs> or you might find Child Protective Services at your doorstep. Take them aside privately and administer the spanking that way. Use an appropriate instrument. I would not counsel you to use a belt. When I was a boy, I had the belt used on me, but it's probably not the best instrument. You want to use something that will inflict um, a, a small amount of pain, enough to get the child's attention and to correct their behavior, but not enough pain to, to do any lasting harm to the child. So what we used, we used a wooden spoke when our boys were growing up. And it had some flex in it, and that was the job of that particular instrument. We would get it out, and the boys know a wooden spoon is for their spanks when they do wrong. J. Vernon McGee puts it this way. I think that the Board of Education should be applied to the seat of learning whenever it is needed. There's the story of the father whipping the little boy and saying, Son, this hurts me more than it hurts you. The boy replied, Yeah, but not in the same place. <laughs> These little ones who simply will not obey need to be spanked. They need a trip to the woodshed. That's J. Vernon McGee's counsel. Number three, I would say ask questions of your child before you administer the spanking. Questions like, what did you do? What does God's word say about that? What do I have to do? And what should you do in the future? Okay, simple questions, but the child needs to come to grips with his sin and his wrongdoing. Fourthly, I would say, never spank 
for child is your responsibility, reserve spankings for direct defiance to your parental authority. And I gave this illustration last week, but if the child forgets and leaves his bike out in the front yard and gets stolen, I would not see that as a spankable offense. That's, he's being irresponsible. But if you tell him, under no circumstances are you to leave this house, will I go to the store and come back? And as soon as you get down the road, he runs, gets on his bike, and goes down to his friend's house. That's direct defiance. Okay? So that would be a spankable offense. He has directly challenged your parental authority, and he needs to learn to submit his will to yours, but ultimately to God's. Number five, never, never, never spank in anger. Sometimes that can be hard because sometimes you're angry when you do it. So you need to take some time to cool down and pray. It, it takes a few minutes. Just go and pray and then come and then deal with your child when you're not angry at them. They're going to learn that dad just hauls off and hits me just because he's angry. Not because he has something in my best interest, but just because he's frustrated with me. Number six, demonstrate love. As soon as you're done with that spanking, give your child a hug. Tell them you love them. Tell them that you're doing this for their good because you love them and you want them to learn how to obey God. That's the most important thing in life. And then number seven, and this is the hardest one of all, be consistent. Isn't that, I think that's the hardest thing we, that we had to try to do with raising our boys is just to be consistent. So never issue a warning without following through. Don't tell them you're going to spank them if they do something and then not spank them when they do that thing. They learn that you don't mean business. Now that's hard because sometimes we're just so doggone tired we don't want to follow through. But you have to. If you, if you want that child to learn that you mean business and that you're serious about this area of your life, you have to follow through. That would mean when you tell your child not to do a particular thing and they start to do it, you don't start counting to three. One, two, did you hear me, son? Two and a half. What does that teach them? Teaches them they have till two and a half to do anything about it. <laughs> so that's not good. You shouldn't have to repeat yourself to your child. If they heard you the first time, that's all it should take for them to obey. You shouldn't have to raise your voice. If you're in the habit of yelling and screaming at your child to get them to do things, something's wrong with that picture. They ought to be obeying you the first time you tell them, and they ought to have immediate obedience. And if they defy you, then I would say it's time for a little bit of the rot, just to teach them that they need to obey mom and dad. It's absolutely important. I read a story several years back about a family that was camping in Southern California, and the father and his son were walking along this path, and the father had a gun with him. He saw a rattlesnake, and he said, son, stand still. The son did stand still. He, he froze. The dad picked up his rifle and he shot the rattlesnake. But what if the father had said, Mike, if you don't stand still, by the count of three, you're going to be in big trouble. Couldn't have been by a rattlesnake. So children need to learn. There are times when it is, uh, the consequences are very, very great. And they need to learn that it's absolutely essential to obey mom and obey dad when they tell them to do something. Now notice in Ephesians 6.4, we're told this is the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. I believe it's talking about discipline that proceeds from God and discipline that's prescribed by God. So, 
When our son does something we don't like, we don't slap him across the face and say, never do that again. What does the child learn from that? Dramatic. That's about it. You haven't told them that the thing that you just did grieves God. And it's disobedience to God. And that's what you need to learn more than anything else in life is to submit yourself and humble yourself before God. So we need to show that a particular behavior is against God's word to the child. Let me give you some examples. And I'm going to take most of these from Proverbs again. But let's say you have a child that's teasing or quarreling with their brothers and sisters. You could take them, and you may have to do some study to find these verses, but you can take them to Proverbs 17, 14, which says the beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. It's like a dam with a little pinhole leak. <laughs> the beginning of strife is like a little leak in a dam. Abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Take them to God's word and show them why it's important to do what mom and dad have told them to do. Or let's say you have a child who's being disruptive in church. They're loud, they're being obnoxious, they're making lots of noise, they're distracting other people while they're trying to worship, you can take them to Proverbs 25, verse 28. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Son, when you're like that in church, you're like, you're like a man who has no control over his spirit, and you're like a city that's broken into without walls. Now, what's, what's a city like that has no walls around it? What's the problem with that? No protection. Anybody can come right in and take over that city. And son, you need to learn to have control over your spirit. Self-control is important. And so when we meet in church, you need to learn to exercise self-control, to listen to what the pastor's preaching, and to sing the songs that everybody else is singing, and to pray when everybody else is praying, instead of distracting other people in church. What about if your son is notorious for tattletaling? Proverbs 26, verse 20. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. So we read this verse to our son. Do you know what? When you stop whispering, contention is going to quiet down. It's like taking wood off of a fire. The fire goes out. So we use God's word. What about uh, if we have a child that uses angry words against his brother or his sister? We could direct them to Proverbs 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So we instruct them and we teach them about God's word that impinges upon their own actual behavior. And we try to instruct them and then we model for them what it, what it means to do this right. What if you have a child who is in the habit of lying? We could go to the New Testament. Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. So this is the discipline of the Lord. It's bringing God's word to bear upon our children so they understand this is what God expects. This is what God requires of me if I want to follow Jesus. Now, let's go back to Ephesians 6.4 and let's look at the second half. It's not only the discipline of the Lord, it's also the instruction of the Lord that fathers are to bring their children up in. 
Albert Barnes, who is a, uh, a commentator from the 1800s, he said this, if a man does not teach his children truth, others will teach them error. So in what areas should we be instructing our children? There's all kinds of areas. I'm not going to get into all of them. I'm going to try to hit the most important ones. And the most important area that you should instruct your children is the gospel. Your children need to understand the gospel. They need to understand Christ. This is the most important thing you will ever do for your child, is to lead them to Jesus. It's more important than providing for their health care, or college education, or making sure they marry the right person. It's more important than any of that. I, I think that we ought to let our children know that we're praying for their soul. That we're anxious for their soul until they make peace with God, until they've been soundly converted. And we can see that they've been born from the Spirit. That, that ought to cause us anxiety as parents. People often ask me, well, how should we evangelize our children? How do you do that? How do you evangelize a child? My answer is always, you do it the same way you evangelize adults. There is no difference. The only difference is you might use different words, words that they can understand. Use language and terms they understand, but you don't change anything. You don't change the gospel just because they're a child. You don't say, well, I'm not going to talk about the punishment of God or the wrath of God or hell. Uh, when my children were young, we talked about everything that was in the Bible. And I didn't hold anything back from them. And I think that's wise. Children need to know that the stakes are huge when it comes to their soul. And we need to inform them that God will punish them on judgment day. If they do not submit their lives to Christ and put their faith in him, they must. And so we should speak about God's law to our children. We should speak about God's wrath that comes upon the children of disobedience. We should talk about the need to surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ rather than just doing our own thing. It's absolutely essential that you su surrender and submit to Christ as Lord. I don't believe that we should soft pedal the gospel to our children. I believe we should tell it to them straight, just like we tell it to adults straight. We should just use language that they understand. They, they have a soul. They're going to live forever in heaven or hell. They need to know how to escape hell. And we as their parents need to be the ones that tell them. Right? There's four basic aspects to the gospel. We need to teach our children, number one, about God. Who is God? We need to tell them that he's their creator. He created them. And they are accountable to him. On judgment day, they're going to have to give an account to this one who made them. Not only that, but he is holy. Holy, holy, holy. This God that made them hates sin, despises it, abhors it. Not only that, but we need to teach them that God is just. He is a judge sitting on a throne who will do righteously. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, the Bible says. Not only that, but we must teach them that this God is sovereign. He does whatever he wants to do. Whenever he wants to do it. To whomever he wants to do it to. And nobody can stop him. He's answerable and accountable to no one. So they need to learn about who the God of the Bible is. And we need to take pains to help them understand God. Number one. 
Number two, they need to understand their own heart, that it's sinful. That they go astray from the womb, speaking lies. That they're a child of wrath. That they're under the wrath of God until they're converted. Now, I know a lot of people like to think that children are somehow in this nebulous uh, age of accountability, and if they die during that age, they're going straight to heaven. Folks, I, I simply can't find that in the Bible. I don't know what happens to children who are young that die. I don't know if they go to heaven or hell. That's, I'll find out when I die, I guess. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't take for granted that our, our kids are fine simply because they're young. We, I, I think from the time that they can understand us, we need to be starting to speak to them the gospel. Help them understand the truth about Jesus Christ. We need to teach them that they have an evil heart. And all of the bad things they do flow from this evil heart. It's not just that they have a problem with doing a few bad things. It stems from them. They themselves are the problem. It's within them. And they need to understand that. They also need to understand they can do nothing to earn their salvation. There's not one thing they can do to appease God. They can't earn it. They can't buy it. They can't deserve it. They need to become desperate, just like we had to become desperate. Number three, you need to teach your children about Jesus because he's the only answer they've got. You need to teach them that Jesus is God in human flesh. You need to teach them that he lived a perfect, sinless life. The only person who's ever done it and never will do that. You need to teach them that when he died on that cross, he died voluntarily to atone for their sins, taking God's wrath on himself so that his wrath wouldn't be poured out upon them. You need to teach them that he rose bodily from the dead. And by doing that, he proved that God accepted that sacrifice for sin. And then you need to also teach him that he's coming again and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And he's going to punish those who are ungodly and he's going to reward his followers. They need to know all about Jesus. But then fourthly, they need to know what they should do to respond to this message that you've been teaching them. What's the proper response, saints? What, do, what, do, what does your child have to do? Repent. He has to repent and he must believe the gospel. He must exercise repentant faith. Or another synonym for that, I would say, and this just kind of came to me this last week, is you need to teach your children to love God. You can't love someone you don't believe in. So love includes faith. And love also includes repentance, because if you love me, Jesus said, you'll keep my commandments. You won't keep walking in evil, evil ways. You'll be in turning from evil and turning towards Jesus. So it's really pretty simple. We need to teach our children to love God. There was a man by the name of John Angel James who lived in the 1800s, and he wrote a letter to his children. And this is quite long, so try to, try to really tune in here, focus. But I think it expresses the heart that every godly parent has for their child. He says, almost every parent has some one object which he desires above all on behalf of his children. Our supreme ambition for you is this that whatever situation you occupy, you may adorn it with the beauty of holiness and discharge its duties under the influence of Christian principles. Much as we desire your respectability in life, we would rather see you 
in the most obscure, even menial situation, provided you were partakers of true holiness, then behold you on the loftiest pinnacle of the temple of fame, the object of universal admiration, if at the same time your hearts were destitute of the fear of God. We presented ceaseless prayer to God for your salvation. As soon as reason dawned, we poured the light of religious instruction into your mind. You can't even remember the time when these efforts began. Have we not instructed and warned and admonished and encouraged you as we lay open to your view the narrow path that leads to eternal life? How can we endure to see our children choosing any other ways than those of wisdom and any other path than that of life? How can we bear the sight to behold you traveling along the broad road that leads to destruction and running with a multitude to do evil? O oh God, hide us from this sad spectacle in the grave, and before that time comes, take us to our rest. Get us out before we ever see that. How would it embitter our last moments and plant our dying pillow with thorns to leave you on earth in an unconverted state? following us to the grave, but not to heaven. Or should you be called to die before us? How could we stand at the dreadful post of observation without one ray of hope to cheer our wretched spirits? How could we have sustained the dreadful thought that the very next moment after you had passed beyond our kind attentions, you would be received to the torments which know neither end nor mitigation? He's pouring out his soul on behalf of his children, telling them how anxious and warning them that they're in, in, they're in great danger and they must be converted or perish. That's the heart of every godly parent. They long above everything else to see their children converted. So the instruction of the Lord. We talked about instructing them in the gospel. Who is God? Who is man? Who is Jesus? And what must we do in order to be saved? That's what you need to instruct them and tell them that over and over and over. Okay, now let's go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy, and let's see what instruction we have there for Israelites as they're raising their children. It's Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Four principles here. Verse 4. Teach them about God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So we teach our children that there is one God. But we also teach our children that God is a trinity. That God has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is one, and yet he's three. And we teach them the other things that I just mentioned about God. His holiness, his justice, his sovereignty, his love, his mercy, his graciousness. His omnipotence, his omniscience, um, all of the attributes of God is something that we should be pouring into our kids. Secondly, we teach our kids to love God. Notice verse 5. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so what we need to do is to teach our children that God is worthy of all of your love. He's worthy of all of your devotion. He's worthy of any sacrifice you will ever make. He is majestic and he's great and he's glorious. And there's nothing greater or more powerful or more awesome than he. So we teach him about this God and we teach him that they ought to love God because of who God is. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So we understand that about our children. Our goal in raising our kids is not just to change behavior here and change it there so that they don't embarrass us when we're out in public. That's not the goal. The goal is to get their heart, that God would really have the heart of that child, because out of that renewed heart flow all the springs of life. If we can get them to go to Christ and Christ can get their heart, we've got it. That's it. That's, that's the whole thing right there. God will do the work of transforming them from that moment on. So we teach them to, to love God. Number three, we teach them to obey God. Look at verse six. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So we teach them that God has commanded us to do certain things. That he is an authority over us and we are required to obey him as our creator and as our Lord and King and Savior. So in all of our instruction and discipline, the goal is to get to their heart so that, you know, a lot of times we say, I, I just want my kids to be respectful towards other adults. Or I, I don't want them to embarrass me when I'm out in public. Or I, we have all of these various goals, but none of those are worthy of your supreme efforts. What you want is a child that loves God and out of a love for God obeys God. Mm -hmm. Our goal is the salvation of our child and the sanctification of our child. Salvation and sanctification. Grace received and grace applied and lived out in a holy life. That's what we want to see. That's what we're laboring for. And then the fourth principle is that we are to teach them diligently. Teach him about God, teach him to love God, teach him to obey God, and then teach him diligently. Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. What does the word diligently mean? Great care. Yeah, great care, great effort. You're putting all of your, you're giving this everything you've got if you're diligent about something. You, you, it's not a laissez-faire attitude. You're not nonchalant about it. You're in blood earnest serious about this thing, right? That's to be diligent. We are to teach them diligently. And notice when. When you sit in your house. When you walk by the way. When you lie down. When you rise up. In other words, all the time. <laughs> When you're taking your kids for a walk, when you're taking them for driving the car, when you go to the store, when you go on a vacation, when you're sitting down <laughs> to dinner, when you have devotions as a family, when you tuck them into bed, you look for opportunities all the time to talk to your children about God and about the gospel. Now I'm going to wrap this up. 
And I just want to exhort fathers for a moment. Fathers, you are the pastors of your family. Your family is like a mini church. God has called you to be the head of that family. You are to lead your family in the ways of righteousness. You need to lead them, guide them, and protect them. You're like a shepherd and they're like sheep. You need to watch over them. You need to take the initiative to make sure they're being cared for spiritually. And that includes things like praying with your family, reading scripture with your family, talking to your family about Christ and the gospel. Uh, in all of these ways, we are seeking to act as pastors to our family. So what I want to challenge you to do is start thinking about yourself as being a pastor. No, not a pastor of a church, pastor of your family. You might even write this on your mirror. I am the pastor of my family. And then act accordingly. Act like a pastor of a church would towards a church. The Bible says pastors watch over people's souls. Well, take the initiative with your family to make sure that you come to God on a regular basis. Don't leave it up for your wife to make sure that happens. Dads, this is your job. You make sure it happens. Now, one thing I did not mention back in Ephesians 6.4, I did mention that, that fathers were the primary disciplinarians, but did you notice also they're also the uh, primary biblical instructors? <laughs> they're to bring them up not only in the discipline of the Lord, but in the instruction of the Lord. So dads, your job is also to instruct them in the things of God. That means that you need to know God yourself. You need to be in the Word yourself. You need to be spending time alone with God and letting him fill you so out of the overflow you can you know, speak into the life of your family. And I know this intimidates a lot of dads. They go, man, I don't, I don't know the Bible that well. How am I going to instruct my kids? Well, there's a lot of helps out there if you're new to this. If you're a new Christian, and we can help you. We can get you set up with some, some guidelines that would help you, some devotions and things. In fact, we, we had a study not too long ago, and Anthony brought up some neat resources that they're using. None of that should be a, an excuse so that we don't take up the mantle of responsibility and lead our families in the ways of righteousness. I'm going to leave you just with this quote. It's the confession of a father, an anonymous father. He says, my family's all grown, the kids are all gone, but if I had to do it all over again, this is what I would do. I would love my wife more in front of my children. I would laugh with my children more at our mistakes and our joys. I would listen to my children more, even to the littlest one. I would be more honest about my weaknesses and not pretend perfection. I would pray differently for my family. Rather than focusing on them, I'd focus on me. I would do more things with my children. I would encourage them more and bestow more praise. I would pay more attention to little things like deeds and words of thoughtfulness. And then finally, if I had to do it all over again, I would share God more intimately with my family. Out of every ordinary thing, of every ordinary day, I would point them to God. Isn't that great? Good counsel. Dads, this work that the Bible is calling you to is more important than your job. It's more important than your favorite TV show. It's more important than golf or watching football or whatever your hobby happens to be. This is the essential. If you fail here, you fail big time. 
And so we need to own up and man up. And we need to say, okay, by the grace of God, I am going to be a godly dad to my kids. I'm going to spend time with them. I'm going to raise them to know Christ. I'm going to teach them the gospel. I'm going to pray for their souls. And then I leave the results to God. Amen? Father, thank you for your holy, precious word. I do pray that the Spirit of God would work through his word this morning to cause fathers to rise up as holy men and to take this task seriously and invest their lives in those young ones. Lord, we pray for a harvest from this young generation. We pray a harvest of souls that these children would come to know and love you. Work in dads and work in kids to the praise of the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.